Yeah, I had no idea why I liked purple, but someone said to me it goes back to your like your childhood days. And my favorite, we wore in primary school purple and yellow. Did you? Yeah. Well, so purple is my favorite color. So. Yeah, it was actually the hardest color to make in fabric. Was it? That's why royalty is oh, associated with the color purple. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was very difficult to get a purple dye mm. to make dye, uh, purple fabric. So they used to do a lot of, that's why the English soldiers wore red. Yeah, like, okay. Because it was very easy and the royalty was ascribed purple. Okay. Hard to make so no one could copy them so they could stand out as royals. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm joined here by Amna B. Yeah, you can wear those if you like. Just get comfortable. You've just finished a, a four-hour job interpreting. Interpreting? Yes, interpreting. Yeah, she's a stand-up comedian, by the way. I went and show her, <laughs> saw her show, which was very interesting. That's why I've got her in here today because I want to talk about it. Uh, but there's a lot. Firstly, let's just go. You're an interpreter, and that's one of the things I do. I work as an Urdu English interpreter, which is the language from Pakistan. Yeah, and also India, and I work as a translator again, Urdu to English. And I also work in the mental health sector um, as a online community, uh, mental health communities moderator. And I do that as well. Yeah. See how you're rolling your eyes up. Is that like, do you hear a lot of dark shit? Is that? I do. Yeah. I'm just like uh, my three jobs that I thought I would do that would give me time to focus on comedy. They're very intense. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Does comedy allow you to drain that energy out on stage and have fun and? Is that your way to reconcile those two energies that you've got going on, the darkness coming in? From I think so, yeah. I think if I didn't have comedy, I don't know how I'd be coping with uh, three pretty intense jobs and where I get to witness a lot of uh, interesting things that happen in the society. Yeah, so you can't talk about that because you're bound by confidentiality, right? Well, I can't talk about the specific cases, but I guess I do see... Uh, I do a lot of health interpreting, which is pretty straightforward. Like you go to the hospital, you work with doctors, mm. which is... I know it sounds like that would be scary too, but some of the actual stuff that I deal with, like criminal cases, um, refugee cases, protection visa cases, which are quite heartbreaking sometimes. I work with uh, a lot of domestic violence, which is really troubling. Uh, I mean, I know it happens, but when you're interpreting and you're hearing everything that happened, is there a root cause of it? Root cause of domestic violence? In from what you're seeing, is it detachment from their native homes, or is it the stress of not being able to find? I think there's a multitude of factors, and um, I think. I guess I'm asking: Have you seen any patterns recurring, like why this is prevalent? Well, unfortunately, the only prevalent pattern I've seen is that these people would have been indulging the same behavior if they were back in their home countries as well. So it's and a getting away it's with it. Yeah, mostly getting away with it. Um, yeah. Over there, perhaps you have extended family to kind of intervene and say, hey, you know, this is not cool. Don't do this. Perhaps there's some support network that could help you. If over here, if you're new to the country and you don't know the language very well, you don't have any contacts, then you're kind of trapped in that situation and that situation doesn't start right away like no one's like oh, I'm gonna marry this person and start uh, being violent I think that, that that pattern emerges a bit later on in the relationship uh, but fortunately you do have uh, resources for people to get out, get out of those situations if you're lucky enough to get out of them so 
Does that Capri put course. you under pressure? Do you feel like you have to become a sort of hero and help this person out of this horrible situation that they're in? No, absolutely not. As an interpreter, you're meant to be just interpreting exactly. And we say that very clearly up front, that I'm not an advocate, even though I am from your community and I understand all the cultural nuances. I absolutely am not siding with anybody here. So and you strictly interpret? I strictly interpret word for word to the best of my ability. So you're, okay. Yeah. So essentially you treat it like a robot. You just, I'm here to translate. Well, it's sort of like a robot, but I'm meant to convey their expression and their feelings as well. So you're kind of like an actor. Yeah. <laughs> but you're interpreting what they're saying and you're meant to be quite detached from that process. And that's for your own sanity as well. That's for everybody. If you become friends with your clients, which is completely against the rules, you're not serving them in their best interest either. You're mm. just meant to be following uh, the, the code of ethics that we're bound by. Okay. And that's rather draining you. A lot uh, of times. Some of them. I think if it goes on and on, like yeah. I can do an hour or two, that's okay. But if it's longer than that, then that's just physically and mentally draining. And some of the topics can be a bit triggering as well. Sometimes you're like, oh my God, you just say it in your own head. You don't say it to the client. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty good at keeping a poker face. So I don't try to like be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. I'm just really meant to be, you're meant to be a neutral professional. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm interested in your journey into stand-up comedy because I found it fascinating. Like, you had a show at the comedy festival called Don't Tell My Family. Yes. Uh, which there in itself uh, just stood out from the page and I had to read more. Uh, everyone's journey into stand-up is different. Well, I, I don't know if I could say that. In the Western world here in Australia, it was kind of easy. You jump in a car and you drive to an open mic and you mm. do it. Um, and that's it. But for you, it was uh, you're in a... I guess it was completely unorthodox for someone like yourself living in Pakistan to even think about doing stand-up. I I think even if I'd grown up here, I still wouldn't have thought about stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an unorthodox thing to do. Like even people here, my friends here from Australia, they find it very strange that I'm doing comedy. So from Pakistan, of course, there's some stand-up comedy in Pakistan. We grew up with some very good stand-up comedians, but that was really the domain of the very few. You didn't have open mics, certainly not the city that I was in which is a conservative town. I never thought about comedy, even when I moved to Canada. I lived there for 15 years, and I moved to Australia and never thought about comedy. I was interested in creative arts. From a young age? From a very young age. I was into theater and performing and at school, at school level. And writing, which is my the biggest love of my life. So you're in primary school in Pakistan. Mm. High school. High school. Mm. You develop an affinity for the creative arts. Oh, very much so, And yeah. you're allowed to be plugged into that medium at school, or was it completely monitored? And uh, Well, at school level, and it was all monitored by teachers as to what material you could work with. Okay. My parents were okay with that. You know, was, I was in, in, a, in an all-girls school until I was 16, and then... Uh, from the ages of 17, 18, I was uh, studying with guys in the same class, which was like, you know, a new thing. Okay. Now, is this a big city in Pakistan or a small town or something like Geelong or something like Bendigo or? No, it's a, it w I would say it's like Adelaide. Okay. Yeah. That's so, tiny. No, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Well, population wise, it's quite dense. But yeah, compared to Karachi, Lahore, it's a smaller city, but it's one of the most ancient cities in the world. So it's got a very deep rooted wow. culture. Yeah. That's it's the city is Peshawar, and it's uh, it's the next it's the only major city you know before Afghanistan. So it's okay. in that side of Pakistan. So east. Sure, is that where it is? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> we call it the northern side of Pakistan, but okay, sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. 
So, uh, yeah, so uh, back to your story. Uh, yeah, primary school doing creative arts, mm-hmm. high school creative arts. Moved to Canada, study accounting, no creative arts. How was the move to um, Canada? How did that come about? Was that mm-hmm. a ruse to get your mum and par- to get your mum and dad off your back so you could go to Canada and basically study creative arts? But you wrapped it up in this lie saying, I'm going to do accounting? I just wanted to... From a young age, I know it's going to sound a bit strange, but since I was about seven or eight, I was very determined that I would leave the city that I was in, that I had to go see the rest of the world. When did that happen to you? Like from a young age? Yeah, from a young age. I was just quite aware of like where I was and in how many ways I did not fit in. I felt very much like an alien. And then, so my you would share, sorry to cut you, would, you would share these dreams with friends and they wouldn't reciprocate them, they wouldn't well, understand. People usually thought I was a bit nuts, really. <laughs> From just saying, I want to travel and see the world, I want to perform. I didn't really say those things out loud, I think I would just be creative. And can you give an example? Would you like just do an interpretive dance at a bus stop? Or? No, I didn't do, I wasn't that bold but i would write stories i was very much into writing stories and i was all about storytelling and acting and singing i was just really into that and so you've got this fucking muscle that just needs Mm. to be flexed so you would just pen down all these stories yeah i would sketch and draw and 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 a bit of painting yeah and friends would read these stories my teachers would read them i would get them published in the youth magazine in pakistan i actually got paid for some of them i couldn't believe it and what age were you uh, so that, um, when I started getting published, that was from age nine until I was there in Pakistan. Oh, that's sick. That's a fucking good feeling. <laughs> were your parents proud of you with that achievement? They were, but my parents are very, they're very harsh critics of uh, creativity. So it had to be really good. Yeah, right. And same with our teachers. They were, they had some crazy standards. Um, like if I would do something fluffy or satire... It wasn't good enough. And I think that's where I struggle with my comedy as well. I feel like it needs to be really clever and as intelligent as I can make it. And that doesn't quite work in comedy. You need to be silly and goofy and just But you're nine years old. Like my mum was proud of me with my karate outfit with a white belt. (laughs) You know, she put that on the mantle. Yeah. No, my parents were pretty strict. Really critique your story. and. Yeah, they were like, yeah, that's okay. The other one was better. Mm. Yeah, very, it was tough. Okay, so at least you, you, you're nine, nine years old? Mm, when and, that started, yeah, the and publishing. Okay. So they're publishing your stories, you're, you're getting this creative outlet, mm. but then it just got more and more, or did it transi- when did it transition into stand-up? So when I was in Canada for all of those 15 years, I didn't do a lot of creative writing at all. I think I was just under so much guilt for leaving my family and my culture. Yes. And being in Canada, that I was so determined to do the right thing and study something proper like accounting. Can I press pause it because you're jumping the gun. Uh, I First of all, I understand completely what you're saying about feeling guilty for leaving. Okay. I felt guilty when I left to go to London for 10 years to do stand-up comedy. Wow. I left a six-figure job as, as yeah. a buyer in, uh, in Coles Meyer, as an assistant buyer in Coles Meyer okay. to do that. And that upset my mother and father to no end. Because they're Greek and it's kind of similar. This is wog mentality. Like you've got to earn. We came from poverty. You have to earn. Um, but they don't realize that we're here to, they're here to facilitate our dreams. We're here to just go up one level to do what we want. But anyway, I digress. Um, so my mum felt guilty. So I can understand that. Um, 
but before you left, how did you tell your parents? Did you sit them down and say, look, I want to go to Canada or yeah, how did I, that come about? So after high school, they said I have to become a doctor. And I was like, <laughs> I, I was <laughs> like, I don't think that's a good idea. That's not going to happen. I didn't really study for my medical school entrance exams. Obviously, I didn't want to get into medical school. And I did. And they're like, oh, that's so upsetting. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Makes total sense to me. And yeah, I mean, you're writing creative stories. You're not playing operation or looking at anatomy books. or That's just, in Pakistan, I guess it's out of love. They just want their children to have those really high, prestigious vocations. And especially if you have any level of intelligence, they really want you. They think the only good use of your smarts is if you're becoming a doctor. Sure. That's, that's what they wanted. But then they weren't, they weren't that, they weren't like horrified that I didn't go to medical school. So I said, I'm going to go to... Uh, National College of Arts, which is the most pre prestigious arts uh, institution in Pakistan, in Lahore. Um, I missed the entrance exams because I missed the deadline. And but my parents were like, "Okay, you can go into that." So they weren't bare, like they weren't uh, stopping me from getting into it. But I just knew in my soul that I would be just best if I left to go to Canada. Hmm. And it took me a year to convince them. What was in your soul telling you it would be best for you to leave? To grow? To grow. To just be really out of this culture that I was in. Yeah. To be completely out of it. To flourish. Um, yeah. I didn't know what was exactly going to happen, but that was important to me. I was like, that's the next step. I wasn't thinking about my 10-year plan. Yeah, it's fucking exciting. You just know I've got to grow. Yeah. I've got to leave. And I knew that my father could make that happen. He was very unhappy. Uh, my mother was even unhappier, but I stood my ground and eventually they relented and they let me go. At what age? 19. 19? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's a baby. I mean, I'm 44. That's a baby. <laughs> yeah, I left. But, you know, I, I wasn't scared of coming to Canada because I knew enough that I'm I thought, you know, it's a pretty safe country to go to. Yeah, it's the safest country probably. I think, I think I'll be fine. Yeah, Canada, New Zealand, you're fine. Exactly. I wasn't that worried. I thought I could find help. And I was fluent in English. Like, English was my very strong... I was actually writing in English and getting published in English in Pakistan. Oh, so you're fluent, yeah. I was totally fluent. So I moved to Canada. Yep. And out of guilt, studied accounting, which didn't serve anybody, to be honest. Yes, but I can see why you did that. You yeah. had to appease your parents somehow. You yeah. just did. You gave them something bitter to chew on. Yeah. The least you could do is give them a sweet. Exactly. Uh, so uh, I did that, and yeah, but it was at least terrible. you forgive yourself for that, right? I do. You know yeah, what? It was good for developing a different side of my brain. You know, working hard and being more rational, which is which is actually good for balancing you out. Yes. I was very dreamy and flighty, so I think it was good for yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I, I did accounting. I don't know fucking <laughs> why, but I did accounting and commerce at La Trobe Uni. I got a little bit of a buzz every now and then doing balance sheets. and A little bit, sure. You're you like, know, oh, this there's an order to it. There's I mean, an order I kept my place in order. I kept my life in order. So yeah. I kind of like that. It's very logical and it makes sense. It's not like yeah. finance where you're like, what's happening with the stock market? Yes. Like yeah. a good piece of stand-up should be constructed Structure. logically exactly and then the surprise <laughs> is the cliff drop and the punchline um so yeah but anyway um so yeah so you're in canada you're 19 you're studying accounting and when did that little voice go oh we want to get on stage that didn't happen until three years ago wow yeah that was only after 
I married, got divorced, moved to Australia on my own, and I was in Melbourne for a year and a half. Oh, fuck. Hang or on more than two years. So you got to Canada, you're studying accounting. Did you graduate? I did. I did my MBA as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. You really tried to make your mom happy. Well, that, that was more to stay there long enough to get my immigration. Oh, I see. <laughs> Uh, which which happened in time. Yeah, yeah. And then I got my permanent residency. And by that time, I'd met my ex-husband. Yeah. And we got married. And we were together for almost 10 years. And that ended. And I moved to Australia. We grew apart with my seven-year relationship. What what happened with you? Uh, it was turbulent from, I would say, get-go. It was just was a very Pakistani? Sticky. His parents were from India. Okay. So it was Indian origin person. He grew up in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. Okay. So, and he was a student there as well in Canada. That's uh, where we met. Not not at my university, but we just met. Did he have a certain stigma of how a woman should behave? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. So he was liberal? He, ex- like probably one of the most liberal human beings I've ever met. So what happened? We just didn't have a lot of the other factors that go into making a beautiful, intimate relationship. You need more than just somebody who's, you know, open-minded. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, uh, you need a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like making a cake. A little yeah. bit of everything goes in. You mix yeah. it all up. Yeah, we were great partners. Yeah, we were great partners in some ways, but I think the juice of intimacy and, and the affection and the romance, that wasn't quite there. From day one? It was there in the beginning, but then I was... A I was appalling at being in relationships. I was not good at being in relationships. I think it's still something I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Not good at communicating. Didn't know what my needs were. Didn't know how to communicate them. And just taking things personally. And he was of the same nature. So I think it's two very undeveloped p- people. Children in human bodies. In adult bodies getting together. Yeah. Uh, it was just one of those young relationships. We got together when I was 23. Quite young. I was very young. So and you've just moved to another country. Yeah, not too long. You're still trying then. to. You just transitioned, trying to experience this whole new life, and yeah, all of a sudden you yeah. didn't know who you were, and you're being thrust with a with another person. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thrust myself with another person. Nobody made me. <laughs> I arranged my own marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and then I moved to Australia. I was in Melbourne for over two years, and I was doing some creative work here, like I was in a choir. Can I stop you there again? Yes. Why the jump to Australia? Was it, I need a new setting Yeah. to get away from that life? No, not that. We actually meant to immigrate here together. We visited okay. um, Australia and Papua New Guinea um, in 2012. And I really loved Australia. As I was flying over Great Barrier Reef, I thought, oh, this is so beautiful. How I'm fucking good is it? Incredible. And I, and I loved the feel of Australia. I really enjoyed it. And I said, oh, we should move here. I'm really done with the cold of Canada. Apart, I was going to say that. Apart from the cold of Canada, how does Australia compare? Because I find them very similar. Mm. Do you? No. <laughs> okay. I think, I think they're very different countries. I think they're, I guess they're both like British origin countries. In that sense, they're similar. They but seem grounded. They seem like... You know, the grounded upstairs neighbor to the downstairs crazy American neighbor. So what's the Australia, who's Australia's crazy neighbor? Well, no one really. I think think Australia. I think Australia is the crazy neighbor. Are we crazy? (laughs) I think so. Oh, fuck. I think New Zealand and Canada are probably more similar. Really? I think just because, think of it, New Zealand is the one next to Australia and 
yeah. Australia is the big guy and like being all assertive and doing all these things. Same with Canada and America. Mm. But in some ways, Australia and Canada are similar because of their social welfare and that sort of stuff. Yes. But in terms of who's more grounded, I would say Canadians are more grounded. Just because they're so next to America, you have no choice. You have no choice, yeah. Uh, but I think Australia is also a very unique country. I think its landscape makes it so unique. And I think the strong Aboriginal culture makes it so powerful and amazing for me. I really felt that when I was here. I don't know anything about Aboriginal culture, but I just I can just feel uh, their their presence and how special the land is because of that. What do you feel like? Is it are you just t- feel? Is, a I just feel a, yeah, a spiritual connection to the land. Are you spiritual by nature? Were you spiritual from a young age, or did you just sense it when you came here, or was it their art, the the land? Well, I mean, I grew up in a very Muslim household, so there was religion around me. I felt quite spiritual to something bigger than myself, and I didn't feel like that was the same as organized religion. Nevertheless, I was religious to the best of my ability because that was the religion around me. But then I guess I sort of lost my religion (laughs) um, over the years, and uh, it was a slow process. And then by the time I was 30, I wasn't really believing in anything i was quite unhappy to be honest and then um, i had a spiritual experience which i'm kind of reluctant to talk about because it sounds nuts um it's what i guess you could say was a spiritual awakening experience it was quite powerful and it was lasted for two days where i was one with everything and was it uh, i'd love you to talk about it but if you don't i completely understand if you don't want to open that door well no i can talk about it i think a lot of people have talked about it i mean people other than me in the world it's just hard to explain what it was was it was it drug induced like did you take psychedelics i wasn't on psychedelics i had a slight bus from marijuana yeah okay and but and what I happened? my mind just dropped i was just so unhappy and i think i was asking questions kept questioning myself about a certain thing which i won't go into yep and at some point my mind it just ran out of questions it's that's the only way i can describe it and then it's like it went into a vortex and it's like I woke up for the first time in my life. I was seeing things and I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm actually one with everything and I'm awareness and everything is perfect as it is. So I, I've for the first time in my life, I felt a separation between what I thought was me, which was the conditioning of the mind and your personality and who you are, which is the true awareness. I, I didn't have that separation before. I was fully uh, identifying with every thought that was coming to my head before then. Isn't that what you, isn't what you're describing a, an epiphany to accept yourself for who you are rather than live up to anyone else's standards? All the thoughts you have are your thoughts and your own ideas and you don't have to place them next to someone else for verification, for approval or this th- is the first time you were independent, alone and you could just live out your life the way you wanted to? I think that's another way of describing it, but I think what I experienced was also, it's also felt very spiritual, and but at the same time not, felt very natural. But um, Spiritual to a deity that there's a higher power, like a, a force, an energy? Or spiritual as in inwards, yourself? Both. Both, okay, <laughs> yeah. And I started spontaneously meditating after that day. I I'd never had any interest in meditation. thought it was for losers. <laughs> really? I was like, oh, God, that sounds terrible. No, meditation is good. Yeah, I know. I learned that after that. I think because mm. I was uh, thirst into it. 
And then after that, I got into Buddhism. I did Vipassana, the 10-day silent meditation courses. And now I meditate regularly. And yeah, it's a big part of my life. It stabilizes me. It's not like, oh, I'm going to like leave the world and then go into a cave. Not like that. Though I thought about it, but... Really? I was like, oh, oh I just want to be like, you know, meditating all the time. A silent retreat? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was a comedian that did a silent retreat. I, I'm sure many of us have. Mm, yeah. I think it was Carl Barron. He went away three months, came back. Oh, yeah, okay. And then had an anxiety attack when he had to open his mouth and speak. They had to take him to hospital. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of things can come up. Big transition from nothing to something. Yeah. So um, so you're in Australia. Mm -hmm. You made the move and you fell in love with Australia. I did very much so. And specifically the Aboriginal culture. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. Um, I was also very much interested in visiting Alice Springs. Yeah, because I was going to say that makes sense to me because you lived in Alice for a short while. I did. So I, when I was in eighth grade in Pakistan, we read this book, um, A Town Like Alice. And somehow I was like, oh, one day I'll go there. So it was just kind of at the back of my mind. I mean, I never consciously thought about it too much. Mm. Uh, but I would talk about Alice Springs a lot with my ex-husband because he had been there. And I was like, oh, I was just kind of fascinated with it. When I moved to Australia, I met this girl at the silent meditation retreat. She said, oh, I'm moving to Alice Springs. And it just came back. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm meant to move there. Yeah. So then I visited her a little bit after that. And I was still like, yeah, this is fine. I went to Uluru. It was amazing. But I still wasn't quite sure I was going to move there. But then it didn't leave me. And then a, a year after that, I, I moved to Alice Springs. I just knew that something creative was going to happen there, that my life would change in a significant way. Mm. So when I moved to Alice Springs, that's when I got into stand-up comedy. Wow. Yeah. That's great. So it's all come full circle from eight years old reading that book yeah, to grade. piloting your own career yeah. away for independence and then finding this person and then moving to Alice. And yeah. there you are. And yeah. that's when it all congealed. I want sure. to stand up and talk to people. Yeah. I'm the My housemate at that time, Simon, he was a stand-up comedian. There's a little bit of a comedy scene in Alice Springs, a Red Center Comedy. That's the name of the group. And we would just banter a lot around the house. And he said, oh, why don't you try stand-up comedy? And I was like, okay, I'll try that. So I did that and yeah, haven't looked back since then. Great. Mm. Um, living in Alice compared to living in Melbourne, mm. um, are there any differences between interpersonal relationships? Like, Yeah, I think Alice Springs is a very strong community and mm. people really look after each other. Uh, it really feels like more of a home than I felt anywhere else in the world before. Wow. And you just make the best friends ever. And um, it's just a very special place. And you just don't have that same community in bigger in bigger cities. And that's just by, you know, kind of kind of have to go into self-protection mode when you're in a bigger city. It's more of a survival here. Yeah, it yeah, you go inwards, don't you? Yeah, over there you have the capacity to be generous with your time. Did that allow you, because you were like, you were looking outward and you weren't, you know how a city ha tends to erode you, so you go inwards, you keep to yourself, you're more fearful. Uh, did Alice help you come more out of your shell? Oh, 100%. And I think that's one of the magical things about being in Alice Springs. I think a lot of people who go there and who love it, they find that they're able to take on risks and do things that they normally wouldn't have the courage or the capacity to do so otherwise in a different place. Does that go back to that being a special place, indigenous-wise? and like I would say so, yeah. sure. 
and maybe indigenous people find it special because the land itself is special. Yeah. So I don't know who what came first. <laughs> have you stood and looked at Uluru? I have many times. I haven't. Uh, it's one thing I will definitely do. Yeah, it's a jaw. It's a jaw-dropping experience for for many. Do you know what it was scientifically speaking? I have no idea. It's just a very magical place again. I know I keep saying the word magical and it sounds mumbo jumbo, but no, it's not. I mean, let's do it half half. I know so from a scientific perspective, I think it was the uh, the remnants of a large volcano that existed there hundreds okay. of millions of years ago. But uh, but I don't know spiritually what it means to the Aboriginal community. I don't either, to be honest. Which is fucked, because we should have been taught that in our curriculum at schools. Yeah, I mean, I don't know either. And I lived in Alice Springs for a year. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all I did was stand-up comedy. Yeah. But it's just um, it's just a very good feeling when you're there. <laughs> that's all I can say. That's great. Good feeling. <laughs> good feeling. So uh, all this was culminating into your show that, that I saw on stage, Don't Tell My Family? Uh, I think that was part of it, yeah. 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 And, yeah, what do you want to know? <laughs> I want to know, uh, do your, are your family aware you did a show called Don't Tell My Family? Oh, yeah. They saw all my posts on Facebook. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and how are they now? What's your relationship now with your parents? Oh, well, I mean, it's always been a bit strained. Yeah. It's better than ever before, I suppose. I think distance helps and going through therapy helps. <laughs> Processing they, your own stuff helps. Have they come around? To what? To your independence and yeah. your right to exist? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The way you want yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, they do. They have. Yeah, yeah they have. Um, that's not to say they're calling me like, hey, how did your show go? No. I don't yeah. think they even understand what it is that I do. Yes, I get that. Yeah, My, they truly don't get it. They're like, oh. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing, I have a comedy show tonight. They're like, oh, okay, great. They don't get it. They don't. Yeah. I mean, my mum and dad, they're Greek born. So they, they've never seen me perform and I've been performing for 18 years. Yeah, it would um, be the same. Yeah. And they just don't understand it. And every yeah. time I talk about a show coming up, they're always going, are they paying you? Oh, that's exactly what my parents say. Is there any money in this? Yeah. I'm like, maybe at some point. I don't know. Yeah. They seem to be cut from the same cloth. I think so. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> they're just very, they're not at all interested in my artistic development. No. It's only my... Um, job. Job, assets. Property. Because, yeah. Property. Marriage. Marriage. Marriage, children, yeah, children, all that. I think, but I cannot, you know, I don't judge them because I understand where they where they came from. They came from uh, impoverished Europe. They had to flee. They had yeah. to live here. My mum, when she was nineteen, she was working in a cutlery factory in Port Melbourne. It was horrific, and yeah. she had nothing. So they had to build that up themselves. So I get that, you know. No, I get it too. I have no grudge towards my parents. Towards yeah, them. Like, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's it's. I, seeing where they came my dad my dad came from a village yeah like a tribal village my parents are tribal people it's not even like two generations removed like it's direct from there so the fact that i'm here that in itself is quite a miraculous event mm. and how did your stand-up show go i saw it i enjoyed it i think it flowed well thank you um i think you yeah it wasn't confusing at all that's good <laughs> um it was um uh very funny so i think that made you relax from the get-go because i noticed you were a bit nervous at the start but once you started getting a few laughs i could see you melting like your your body language just changed and i'm like oh good she's in a groove here now she's away 
Um, and I you was, didn't look at your notes a lot, and it was a preview show. Yeah, I really, I thought I looked at my notes more than I needed. No, not as much as I'd seen other comics doing okay. preview shows, so okay. it's great. Well, that's good. I was very, very nervous. I was actually, I experienced a few panic attacks uh, a month before the show, but when I realized what it is that I was doing, when I saw like some tickets being sold, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, it's I just real. Th- I just thought only my friends and people they know would come, and then when strangers were buying tickets... Yeah, how did that that make you? Oh shit! Did that give you a panic attack? I was like, I need to put together a show that actually has to work, that has to flow, that has to be funny. That's not garbage. Yeah, bitch, that's the fire on your ass that we all need. I was like, oh my god, what? I'm like, what am I doing? Like three years into comedy, you're not meant to put on a solo debut show. Like what the? Like who do I think I am? Yeah. How dare I? But then I'm like, you know what? (laughs) The rest of the world's in lockdown. This is the only thing that's happening in town. Yeah. Just kind of have to do it. I know it's totally, but this has been a weird year and a half for everybody. Yes. We're all doing things we were not supposed to be doing. So, yeah, yeah whatever. Um, and you got a good turnout, so you would have been really happy with that. I actually sold out all my shows before the festival opened. Wow. Before my show opened. I was like, That's this... your first solo show. Yeah, it was crazy. So you sold out your first fucking run. My run before Jesus, the night opened. Jesus, look at open. you. Yeah, it was nuts. It was I fucking was, great. I was, I was like, I'm not even going to. I wasn't processing. I wasn't like, yeah, whatever. I'm not thinking about it because I was yeah. like, I just need to focus on my content. Yeah. I'm like, whatever the ticket sales have happened, that's great. They didn't have to. Mm. Um, it's not a matter of whether you deserve something or not. It just happened. Yeah. Whatever. It's just about actually being a comedian. Yes. And that's what gave me panic attacks. <laughs> <laughs> How does a panic attack uh, manifest itself for you? For um, me, for like, me, yeah. I begin to backpedal. I try and think of ways I can get out of it, um, cancel the show, Mm. maybe not make it happen, call in sick. (laughs) Um, I sweat. I start freaking out. I can't remain seated. But then I'll get my whiteboard out, which is out of focus here on the camera, and I'll just start fucking working, and I have to work. It's almost like the way I describe it to people is you're you're at the edge of a cliff, there's a huge gap, and then there's the other cliff. Booking your show is throwing everything that's in your backpack that you need to survive to the other side, and now you have to jump that chasm to make it to the other side. It's going to happen. So once you book a show, it's going to fucking happen. So you have to then um, work on the show. Yeah. And I always work backwards now. I book an hour show and then that gives me the pressure to start writing because yeah. it's real. There's going to be an exam. Yeah. I actually, I mean, I we had to register well before I wrote my show. Yeah. But I had the intention for the show after Melbourne Fringe. So had, I knew that I was going to do a comedy festival show. And my panic attacks manifest in the way that I actually get a lot of palpitations sometimes and I'm not able to sleep. And I have to just lie on the floor until like I can calm down. When you say you can't sleep, do you, f- do you fall asleep and then quickly wake yourself up? Both. Yeah. Because yeah. I've had that one. Yeah. Um, which is normal. It passes with time. Yeah. And, um, just, and just in a, in a state of paralysis where... I was like, there has to be one way my show has to be and the, the perfect way that's going to appeal to everybody. And I just know that there's that one way. If I can figure out that one way to write my show, then that's going to work. So then I had to, fortunately, my therapist helped me talk me out of it. She's like, there's no one way. It's yes. It's this It's this perfectionism that's just like had this strong grip. And yeah, I just you gotta... really had to like let that go. You took my fucking point away. That's exactly what I do. I I have this 
uh, panic attack, it manifests itself in, my God, this show has to be perfect. And then I let go and I go, you can't have perfection. Yeah. It's, so you not. can't get Absolutely to it. Not. So just, and yeah. there's many ways of executing this show. Uh, yeah. I'm, so fuck it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I, that allows yeah. me to breathe. Yeah. So I had to learn that. And I actually solicited help of uh, a couple of friends to help me to get their feedback on the content, which I'm really happy I did. People that I respect creatively. Yeah. And so you panel beated the show with them back and forth. They assisted you with punchlines. Well, I wrote the, the I wrote the show and I uh, asked a friend, Sonanda. She's a comedian. She's an amazing creative. And I, uh, she was there for a couple of hours at my place. I booked her. I'm like, here's an appointment. Can yeah. you come and help me? I will pay you. And she actually listened to my That's show. That's one way to get a comic to come and help you. Well, whatever. Why not? It's the, it's the only way. Yeah. As somebody you respect, why not? Please yeah. pay them. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> pay me. We need it. Help us. Yeah, why not? I mean, it, it gives you that pressure to like uh, churn out good work for them as well. To yeah. Review. So I did that and she gave her feedback and stuff, which I took. And then I just had one night of preview and then the next day was my opening night. But yeah, it was a nerve wracking. But, you know, I knew, mat- I knew my material really well. It's something I've been doing for three years. It wasn't something I'd written like two months before. Yeah. So that was good. So what's next now with, um, is that show being put to rest or are you going to keep those ideas, keep the same jokes, workshop them, evolve them, develop tags and see where else you can go? Or are you going to write a brand new show? How do you develop your stand-up? With me, I keep my jokes and I start finding that uh, the same way a a tree sprouts branches, I'll develop a new tag and then that tag will get bigger and bigger and become its own branch i think that is what i will do i will keep the jokes and keep working on them but also new material yes and the show itself i think i may do that may may do that show again in some other town in australia yeah you should yeah i would like to adelaide in february 2022 possibly yeah and and perth and even just uh, off festival if i go to alice springs or darwin or whatever yeah so there's a, a co- there's a healthy comedy scene in Alice. Like, can you gig? Is there one gig a month? One, one, one gig a month, yeah. One gig a month. Yeah. And then you would have interstate headliners coming through, and then that would be every three weeks. So if you were decent, you could open for them, one of the opening acts. Mm. So that was good, too. That's where I met Kirsty Wiebeck. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So do you try and perform every, at least three nights a week? Do you have a self-set? Uh, scale of I think at least three nights a week is good if more than that it can get a bit stressful but I don't usually Mm. turn down gigs why does it become too much because I've often had that thought you could suffer burnout yeah for sure I think if it's every night of the week and you're not taking a break between your work and, and comedy if you don't have a day off that's when it starts to feel a bit much yeah I start to burn out it's not good I've often said, yeah, the creative process is a bit like inhale, exhale. So you like, yeah, you, you perform, that's like exhale. And then you go away, you retreat and you think about ideas, you let it incubate. And that's your process of growing on the inside, more material. And then you repeat. Okay. Rather than being up on stage every night and just. Bah, I, bah, bah. I agree. And I think I'm starting to see the value of that more after the festival for some reason. Yeah. Like there's a lot of value in taking time off, off stage so you can live be yourself, observe the world, and then have material to work on. Otherwise, if you're gigging every night, it's... 
Yeah, it's like an ice addict. You're off your fucking head. You're just jumping up on stage every night, every night, burnout. Dude, uh, relax. Take yeah. a breath. Yeah, and you're just marinating in the same stuff and you get caught in the spiral of, like, oh, I didn't do that gig wasn't good. I must do another one to make up for that. It's like, give yourself um, the permission to not do gigs all the time. Mm. And if you did a bad gig, it's okay. Forgive yourself. Yeah, what's you? <laughs> yes, I, I completely agree. There's this. Uh, I forget her name. She's a UK comedian. Damn it, I'm trying to think of her name. Damn, she's married to Gary Delaney, a famous one-liner. Sarah Milligan. Yes, Sarah Milligan says, uh, "If you die, and if you smash, um, the next day at 11 a.m., she cuts it off and forgets it. Forget." Like yeah. she wallows in the, she wallows on it. She thinks about it. She processes it. But then the next day at 11 a.m. it's gone. I think that that is, that's true. That is what happens. Yeah. You will eventually get over it, which is the next day and have to gig again. Yes. And I think um, another thing that I'm scared of is the insanity I see sometimes on the circuit where you see a comedian who, have you seen a comic who bombs, doesn't get any laughs, but then they'll come off stage and go, that was all right. Oh. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck did I just witness? That's insanity. There's a lot of delusion and insanity in the comedy circuit. I think just like in every other field in life, but you see it more just because you're so absorbed in comedy and it's so real time that you see people's delusions real time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you record your sets and listen back to them and I then do. look for ideas there? That's what I do. I do, yeah. It's very painful, but yeah, I do record my sets and <laughs> it's so painful. I don't listen to all of them, but I listen to a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 one of it's my least favorite thing to do. Why oh. do we hate it? Why do we hate listening back to ourselves? Because you realize how shit you are. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh my god, that is just terrible. Like that's not even good. Yeah, I'm very harsh on myself. I'm like, none of it is funny. I hate my material all the time. Yeah, it's interesting. I. I hate most of my material yeah. and the stuff that I like. I'm like, yeah, it's yeah, all right. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> but that's, uh, is that a necessary facet of our stand up? Do we need that to drive us I don't, forward? I, I hope not. But I think that's I think what that's gives us the pressure to write. Otherwise, I don't, I don't know. Otherwise, we'd be resting on our laurels. I don't know. I think, look, there's a really funny comedian in Darwin. I don't know if you know her, Amy Hetherington. No. Okay, she's a very happy, positive person. And I'm like, okay, that's also possible. You don't have to hate yourself. But that's just her surface. Do we know what's going on underneath? Ma I, like, she, I think she has said that she's actually quite okay. Okay, well, I think we need to live with her for a bit to experience. Maybe, but... Because I think there must be a yin and yang to everything. I, oh Johnny, I only see Like things. accounting, balancing act. Like the, where yeah. you see someone who going, I am so fucking positive. There's got to be some negative. Everything balances. Sure. I think, yeah, I think she's, she's quite witty and she can come up with like really good comebacks and stuff for sure. But I actually think it's that voice in our head that's like, you're not good enough. And that's why you're that I'm the only reason you're writing because otherwise you'd be a lazy sitting on your ass. I think that's the voice that hijacks our yeah. sanity i don't think we need that voice as much as we think we do yeah i think i think if you're i think creativity comes from something beyond ourselves you're just a medium for it you just have to let it channel through you say that where where does it come from because this is the comedy gods this is a weird parallel idea but i read a book on a famous mathematician called ramanujan and Ramanujan was like 13 or 14 years old and he was sending all these mathematical equations to professors in England and they were profound. 
and he had no training, just basic mathematics training. And they said to him, where are you getting these ideas? And he says, I channel the, mm. a God and I get my formulas through them. Yeah. And I know they're right. And he was proven right on many of his formula and theorems years later. So, yeah, you prescribe to that idea that we're mediums and the comedy is out there in this ether. And I think creativity is out there. and the, We are creativity and you just, you have these inspirations all the time. You have this punchline pop up in your head, that idea pop up yeah. all the time. Now it's your job to write it down. So that's that's where you take the next step and you write it down. But the idea came to the idea came to so many people, but the first one to get it on stage gets the joke. Yeah. Same thing with <clears throat> a book or something. A lot of people may be getting the same sort of idea, but if you put it down first, you did something with it, it's yours. So how do you prepare your body, your mind to tune into that ether to get those punchlines. I'll be very honest, I haven't been doing a very good job of it, but I think the more relaxed and grounded you are, the more grateful you are about life, the more centered you are, the more you go with the flow, the more you accept your failures and your successes with as much equanimity as possible, then you're in that state of balance to let things come through to you. But I think the happier you are, the more excited you are about life, the more you get ideas. But the more negative you are, not going to get as good ideas. You're going to get some really dark thoughts, which you think are really clever and funny, but they're not. <laughs> Everything she just said. <laughs> I have to end it there. That's fucking it. Like, that's the hour done in a nutshell. I can't top that. Uh, I completely wholeheartedly and spiritually agree with everything oh. you just said then. I wasn't sure if you were agreeing with me, but that's good to know, Johnny. <laughs> that was like, that's how I think. Brilliant. Exactly that. Uh, Emna B, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, I really Johnny. appreciate it. Where can we see you? Are you a regular anywhere where people can pop in and check you out? I just gig wherever I can gig. And tonight I'm at Dirty Secrets. Yay. Dirty Secrets in Collingwood. Yep. That's a great little room to see uh, new comics and experienced comics come down and try some stuff. Um... It's a nice little spot uh, that not a lot of people know about. So if you want to see some great comedy, check it out. Um, for sure. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Johnny. That was great. Cheers. Thank you.